Hi, I'm Gary Cook, and you're listening to Rugby Legends. My guest today is, you could say, a double legend. He won the Triple Crown with Ireland not once, but twice. He was also a British and Irish lion. Since uh, retiring from international rugby, he has done great charity work and is very much involved in social and political activism. Uh, He was once even referred to as having pre-Raphaelite good looks. It is a huge pleasure to welcome Hugo McNeil. Hi, Gary. Delighted to be with you, Gary. Hugo, I'd like to uh, start by asking you uh, about the present, really, about the rugby present, uh, and a lot of talk of the recent alliance selection to South Africa. Uh, What did you make of it? I think it's always very difficult to you know, pick a Lions team. Um, I think it's particularly difficult at the moment. Um, you're always going to have people disappointed. But I think, I think every, like everyone, I was disappointed for some of our guys who've been, you know, very good over the last few years. You know, I think it's a huge call not to bring Johnny Sexton because if you were actually designing a team to win a test series in South Africa, um, you want somebody at, you know, number 10 who's going to guide you all around. A bit like a, a golfer who hits all the fairways and hits most of the greens in regulation, uh, as opposed to some other guy who'll hit one shot two inches from the pin and put the next ball on the on the beach. Uh, and so I think they were just making a call that they weren't going to get Johnny at his at, at, mm. at his best or close to his best. And uh, you, know, I, I, you know, he was very good for us against England. And you know, I think that's disappointing. Obviously, disappointing for some of the other players as well. But it's been a tough season, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's ended up you know quite tough for Leinster, and so probably some of the players who were from Leinster as well, who might have been otherwise expected to go, may have may have lost out as well. What can they expect in South Africa? Because you know, there's a huge amount of talk about 125 kilogram players and all of this kind of the the beast that they have. I mean, ha- ha- what do they have to do to beat that? Do you think? Yeah, I think you've got to match South Africa physically, and 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 then actually to play um, your own brand of rugby, which is you know, you know, moving the ball wide and not being just sucked into a a, a physical a physical battle. Um, South Africa are very strong after having won the World Cup, but they haven't played very much rugby, so it's a, it's a little bit of a step onto the unknown in, in multiple dimensions. This tour, without you know, being see how many spectators, obviously can't go from here. Um, and it's going to be hard, and and the team is going to be kind of very restricted as well. In which, in which, what it can do. Part of Alliance tour was getting out and visiting the country, visiting schools. Um, it was kind of much more Alliance tour at its best, much more than just a rugby event. But uh, you know, we've got to, we're confronted by the situation that we have, and the authorities and the Alliance authorities will make the best of it. Uh, and of course, you were on a Lions tour in New Zealand in 1983. I mean, what what was that? What are your memories of of that? Yeah, I mean, it was a difficult tour. We, you know, we were well beaten in the series by the All Blacks. It was disappointing. I'm not sure we at our best would have beaten the All Blacks at their best. But it was. I think what we were disappointed was that we didn't. You know, I think we don't didn't show the best of ourselves. But it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, playing with the guys who you had competed against in the tournament. At that, those days, you know, it was a two and a half month experience all around New Zealand. I was a student at the time, so it was it, it was just fantastic for me. And it was it's a fantastic country. It's the most beautiful country I've ever visited. And you know, they just wanted to. You know, and at that time, there was a big amount of like going to the schools and 
doing other other things. And uh, you, you had a real chance to enjoy New Zealand and and actually really get to know some of your adversaries in the in the the home nations tournament as well. And you got a great team spirit out of it. And I think sort of the interesting thing about the Lions and people, you know, come forward and say some, you know, sometimes, you know question it and obviously it's very big important commercially but the players love it the players love it and I think as you know I think as long as that that's the case I think it's a very strong case in favour of it and uh, hopefully it'll go well and hopefully it'll be a series that people will remember uh, even though it's kind of very difficult times. Uh, And uh, recently of course the Six Nations what did you make of Ireland's uh, performance uh, in that Hugo? I think we've you know since we won the Grand Slam I think it's been I think the good thing was it finished the tu- we finished the tournament kind of strongly. Um, I think the challenge has been that since we won the Grand Slam, to, you know, you have to move your game forward um, because people have sort of figured out how to play Ireland a little bit, the sort of the pick and drive, the certain limited range of set pieces, the sort of, you know, the kicking, the box kicking, They, you know, the, the game that won the Grand Slam a couple of years ago people had learned to counter. And I think what we need to do is to develop the game. We need to sort of, you know, bring a more coherent backline threat, consistent backline threat, um, if we want to win it. I mean, it was great we finished on a, you know, on, on a good note, but I think this, you know, knowing the ambition that there is within that squad and the ambition within the management, I think it's really important to sort of bring your game, you have to bring your game on or people figure out how to beat you. And I think people have figured out how to play Ireland over the last uh, couple of years. And therefore, we've got to be just keep extending the game. Now, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, your own rugby and your going to the deep past. Uh, so you were in Black Rock. Uh, you played rugby there and you you won the Senior Cup in 1977. Uh, I mean, that must be a huge, huge thrill and excitement to win a senior cup. What's that like? It actually, because of the situation at the time, is still the biggest thing you ever win. Um, and because it sort of dominates so much your, your, at, at your time and you speak to a lot of players, you speak to players, it, it's, it's, still, it's, still, it's still a huge thing. Uh, and it's a fun, it was a fantastic tournament and uh, it's competitive. And, you know, I've got to know... Stuart Lancaster quite well, who's been a great coach. And he said he just can't get over the standard of Leinster schools rugby. And that that's actually in, in modern day is enabling Leinster with far less resources than the English and the French teams have. Because you have such a competitive system uh, is actually producing the players that other co- you know, teams in France or England are, are, are going out and buying. Uh, and it's fantastic. It's it's so competitive. It's 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 a, it's a great competition, and and a bit like the European Cup, it's got even better in recent years because in addition to the sides that, you know, were winning it like Black Rock or Belvedere or St Mary's, um, you're now seeing the other teams, the emergence teams like St Michael's, you know, St Andrews, uh, and also around the around the province that you, you know you saw some people like Jane Horgan. Now you see Sean O'Brien. You're seeing Tyke Furlong. And so it's 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 a great it's a great competition, uh, and, and you know when I went I spent lived and played in England for a long time with Oxford and London Irish, you know a lot of my English friends didn't have they didn't have the equivalent that were, and it's and it and it really was mis, it enabled I think us to compete um, above our you know above our size as a country, um, you know having players who have come up through this. And are, who are kind of hardened through this, and so it was a fantastic experience, you know, for me playing, and uh, it's still 
you know, still will come out, out as, you know, one of the greatest memories, which kind of seems to people will seem strange. It was only schools, but because of the time, because it's so all consuming, because it's your life, it's your friends, friends of which that I still have today or that I, that I played with. Uh, it makes it a very special competition uh, for everybody. And it was, it was, it was the, probably the single, you know, the biggest thrill. You ask Ollie Campbell, who was the guy who was the greatest player I've ever played with or against, um, who, who won, played for the Lions, played for Ireland multiple times. You know, you ask, still the school's cup is the biggest. I worked with him the other day and the uh, school's cup is still the biggest. So it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful tournament, a wonderful tournament. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. So you excelled academically as well. I know you, you, you got into uh, Trinity College and you were a scholar. And then you also got into the Irish rugby team in 1981. So you were clearly like a very successful young man. I mean, a very incredibly exciting time, if very busy for you. Yeah, it was. It, it, it was. It was. It was. It was great. I had a great time in um, in Trinity and loved it, and still got a very strong attachment to it. And it was. It was. It was lucky. And the best thing of being. Uh, you know, the scholar was that you could actually stay on for, you got a couple of years, you got rooms, you got, uh, you could stay a couple of years. So I stayed the next couple of years and did Anglo-Irish literature and uh, just for fun with uh, Brendan Kennelly and David Norris and Darren Brown. And it was, that was a fantastic, it was an absolutely fantastic year. And um, that was really, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a great experience. And then, you know, getting picked for Ireland was you know, your dream come true. You'd always wanted to want to do that, and um, so it was good. We come, won the wooden spoon in my first in my first mm-hmm. season, losing all four home games. But uh, it was a sort of it was a good team. There was some, the elements of a good team, and that came through the next year in the champion. Uh, one of the early big decisions you had to make uh, was the Irish tour to South Africa in 1981. Now I know you were probably pretty politically aware, particularly being in college at that time. Was that a, a difficult decision for you or, or, or was that an easy decision? Um, I think it, it turned out to be the more it went on, the easier the decision was not to go. I mean, South Africa was very divided at the time, the apartheid regime. And there were people kind of saying, well, keep politics out of sport and don't 
you know, don't go. But you know, sport was so embedded in politics in South Africa um, in, in so many ways. But I think ultimately it was the black leaders were saying, please don't come, you know, please don't come. You had a very strong Irish anti-apartheid movement led by the great Kader Asmal. And, um, you know, the more I listened to it and the more I heard people talking, the just the more and more I was thinking this is, this is not right. You know, it's, um, for me, it's not, it's not the right thing. It's not the right thing to go. And, uh, you know, since then, I actually went and spent a couple of years in Oxford after that. And a lot of South Africans were in Oxford. And I just wondered how they'd, and I played with a lot of South Africans. And I was wondering, you know, just it was interesting how they would, how they would take that. And it was interesting because most of them were kind of very liberal. And I always remember this guy, Chris Hugo Hammond, great giant second row from Cape Town. And the last thing he said to me was when he left, when we were leaving Oxford, he said, he said, you know, come and see us in South Africa, but not on a rugby tour. And, and you know, so for people who were in the, you know, South African liberal rugby player, that, that is sort of confirmed in my mind that at the time it was the right thing not to go. And so it's so fantastic to have seen how things have developed. I mean, South Africa's with many major problems. But, you know, 14 years later to see Francois Pinar and President Nelson Mandela together as South Africa won the World Cup. And then fast forward, who would have believed it? And who would have believed it fast forwarding again, the last World Cup and a black captain of South Africa lifts the World Cup. So it's, you know, it was it was, it was extraordinary uh, time. And actually the greatest thrill, one of my greatest honors, you know, in our life was we were invited when President Mandela came to, you know, came to visit Ireland in, you know, in 1990 and been invited to, you know, to meet him was, was 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 phenomenal, but I'm so delighted that they that he and his, his inspiration led, um, you know, to rugby, which was this great symbol of division, a huge symbol of division in, in South Africa, uh, came a, came a, a single of uniting. And so, when in 1996, when we arranged the, the Peace International after the IRA put bombing mm. bombed Canary Wharf, myself and my great friend from Belfast and fellow Irish teammate Trevor England decided we'd organize the Peace International. It was a year after the World Cup, um, the year after the President Mandela's image with Francois Pino had gone around the world. Uh, and we said, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's bring the best players. But we need some of the best South Africans to come because that's the image. And Francois Pinar came, the captain, who, whose image was so indelibly associated with that win, came, came to the game, even though he got injured at the last minute he came and just his presence in the stadium which filled Lansdowne Road and guests of honor were all children who'd been affected by the troubles. Um it was the most powerful image my, my rugby time. We've had many great days in Lansdowne Road now the Avila Stadium. But nothing was nothing was was more powerful than that. And you know if I'd some if someone had said to me in 1981 when I was deciding not to go to South Africa that you know a little over 10 years 14, 15 years later would be having the captain of South Africa you know, come and being the sort of the centerpiece of this game for peace in Northern Ireland it just shows, um, you know, the power of, of sport at its best. But but it's not it's too simplistic to say don't mix politics and sport because they are mixed. And that was that was that was that was a, that was a great day. Can I ask you what was Mandela like? Because I, I've heard that he is the most charismatic of uh, charismatic of charismatic men. Oh, absolutely! He just. He just was extraordinary. I mean, it was just his presence, and you just know what he what he'd gone through. Um, it was just it was just really humbling to be in his be in his presence, and um, he was extraordinary. And I remember Francois Pinar told me I got 
to know Francois quite well after he came to the Peace Game. And he told me that, you know, the story that before they went in 1995, went out to play the final against the All Blacks in, in South Africa, where the All Blacks were overwhelming favourites and they were all gathered in a huddle in the dressing room just before they went out. And there was a knock on the door. The president of the South African Rugby Union came into Francois and said, President Mandela wants to come and see you all. And they were huddled. They were about to go out into the play. The All Blacks said, oh, we can't. They were trying to be so concentrated. He said, oh, we can't, we can't. He said, Francois, it's, it's the president. The president wants to come in. And he said, oh, well, then of course he must. And President Mandela came into their dressing room wearing the Springbok jersey and the Springbok cap. And none of them knew that this was going to happen. And these were the great symbols of apartheid um, and of aggression. And he said, we just stood and looked at him, this around our president, wearing the colours. And he said, at that moment, we knew we were not going to lose that game. It was an <laughs> extraordinary, extraordinary moment. Yeah. You know, can, can you just imagine like, Nelson Mandela? And uh, oh, it's, it was a phenomenal privilege to meet him. It's an, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary story, uh, that, Hugo, because given the history of it, uh, uh, and it was one of those moments, I suppose, when sport and politics did meet, you know, and in a, in a, in a good way. We can get on to the, um, the European International a little bit later on, uh, but we're still back in the 1980s. Think of grim Dublin in the 1980s. Uh, so you get into the Irish team, young man, 1981, whitewashed, uh, I know, uh, but then comes along 1982 when you won the Triple Crown. So tell me, what changed in the team? Yeah, the team, I mean, the, the elements were there. I think we lost the games in 81 pretty closely. And then we went on to 1982 and won the championship. And the Triple Crown, and I suppose the Triple Crown was one thing, but the championship was was even big. We hadn't won the championship since 1949. Ireland hadn't mm. won the you know, you know, the championship. But it, a lot of the players were there. The young young players had sort of come through. A number of people had come through within the Irish universities, Trevor Ringland and Lena and Philip Matthews. Um, well, Philip was, was a bit later, Donald, whatever. But it's, uh, it just was, there was, and Kieran Fitzgerald was came in as captain and mm. Kieran was, was inspirational captain. But mm. we'd go, I always remember going out to Black Rock, um, my, my club, after an Irish training session with the late and great Willie Duggan. And Willie, I, I was not, it's almost at the question stage, still calling him Mr. Duggan. He was a legend. He was an icon of Irish rugby. And he said to me before, this is the 82 season, I think we're going to win the championship this year. In fact, and I said, are you serious? We've got whitewash last year. And he said, yeah, I think the elements are there. And he was absolutely right. And Ollie Campbell was just, the you know, coming into, his own, but Ollie was just magnificent in uh, in '82, and he was the best player I've ever uh, played with or against. And uh, I always used to say two prayers going to, going to bed. I said, "Mum, God bless my mother and father, and thank God Ollie Campbell wasn't a fullback because he would have he would have played in any <laughs> position. You know, he could have he would have been, he was a fullback. He'd have played in mine. I had great sympathy with Tony Ward. He was a great player as well. He's just so unlucky that Ollie was in his in his position. And Ollie was absolutely brilliant. And he was he, he and Ollie Campbell could have played today. Plays with such intelligence, awareness of space, creation of space, made so many great tries. Made created the, the, the tries rather than scored them, and he was just the best player I've ever played with or against. And uh, I think he was key. And but everybody stepped up. Stepped up. Everybody it was a group of you know the hardened guys like Moss Keane and Willie Duggan and Fergus Slattery and Phil Orr, who'd been around a long time, and then the young younger guys coming through as well, which was uh, which was great. Uh, and 
you got close to winning the Grand Slam that year. Uh, you didn't quite happen. You had a month between the, the game against uh, Scotland when you won the Triple Crown and then the game against France in Paris. Uh, is that a regret uh, for you or or did you... Did yeah, you kind I think of, it was a regret. You know, we had won the champion, you know, the Triple Crown and the championship. And I think that's the important thing because you can actually now you can win the triple crown but you can actually lose the championship you could win the triple crown and come third in the in the six what's now the six nations you could at, at, at the time so with, the important thing was winning the championship and um, i think yeah the fact that we won the championship and we had a month before the power of the french game uh, and the whole country went on a party and i think we went on a party with them as well i mean it was the whole thing absolutely uh, and, and uh, you know it was, i remember going to paris and there were so many people bumping into Irish supporters that night. And when they're having their drink, they're holding in one hand, they had their drink. And the other hand, they were covering the badge on their sweaters, which was Ireland Grand Slam sweaters <laughs> <laughs> in Paris. <laughs> and, uh, so it was, it just was, it was probably too long. Uh, in, in, in France had lost the first three games and they brought back all the grizzly, the heavy, heavyweights, huge guys, vicious, you know, ferocious guys to play. The first scrum, they, pummeled our you know our forwards and punches flying they, they they seized control of the game and we never you know we never we never got it back and i uh, i always remember fergus slattery and willie duggan at night saying you, you've got to can't let the french get a jump on you physically my goodness the next year when they came back to dublin in 1983 they tore into them and i and it was uh it was a, the situation got reversed you chaired the championship that year in 84 willie john mcbride uh, took over and you you didn't win a match in that uh, series. What happened there? I think you know. I think we we uh, goes back to what we said. We didn't move our game on. We didn't move our game on, and people figured out it was like we were talking earlier about the current size. People learned how to play us, and uh, you know we kind of naively, um, you know, thought we'll go out and we'll do the same things, and you know things that had bounced our way our way beforehand bounced against us. Next, which was a pattern that was going to be repeated in '86 after '85, but it really just you know showed to me you've got to move the game on. And uh, we we kind of thought probably oh, we'll just do the same again and it'll be fine. And you know games we had been winning narrowly, we lost narrowly, and some games we lost by more. And so there was there was a, and I think there was a, there was there was probably also coming the end some of the you know greatest players for Irish rugby, the, the guys who'd gone through the previous generation, the sort of Slattery, the Dogan. Um, the Maskeens, uh, you know, you know, it was going to be um, coming over, and then some of the younger players hadn't sort of come in at that, you know, come, come in at that stage. But it just, it just kind of shows you it's the same principle that there's, you have to move your game on. You have, you can't play the same way. Don't, don't think that people won't figure out how to play you, and that, that's what '84 is. So when Mick Doyle came in then for 85, I remember he he said pretty much before the, the, the tournament that year that that um, Arden were going to move the ball and we're going to try and get it out to the backs. So wasn't that right? He was quite expansive in how he wanted you to go about it? Yeah, he said you can play. You can be the best team in Europe, and you can you you can run. Like I'm, I'm bringing I'm bringing your running I'm bringing your running team. I'm going to pick a running fly half, and he did in Paul Dean, and we're going to play it. We're going to run the ball, and you can be the best. and we all wanted to believe it. I don't think we quite believed it. But we wanted we wanted to we wanted to believe it, and remember the first game we got that year away in Scotland, and um, from nearly from the first, yeah, all we got we ran. Now I unfortunately was 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 at the end of a brilliant move, and I had the ball in the wrong hand, and I was tackled going over the line, 
uh, ribbed unmercifully by the my players, you know, by my teammates for the for the rest of the season. But it was a signal of intent. It was the signal that we were going mm-hmm. to play, and we wanted to believe. We all wanted to believe we could play this rugby. But Mick was so passionate and so convincing that that he was he you know he he persuaded us, and it was it was a fantastic you know to win that Scottish game. We won it with a great try at the end of the season at the end of the match with Trevor England, where most of the team was involved. And it was an extraordinary, it was the, probably the most extraordinary Irish dressing room I've ever been involved in. Because this was this new team, this young team had, had come of age. And I remember going back into the dressing room and nobody wanted to sit down. Nobody wanted, everyone was going around embracing and talking about mm. the thing. It was absolutely electric. And in fact, even, you know, as good as the, the championship in 82 and the dressing room after because these were a lot of people you'd grown up with, you'd played in college rugby with. And you were just saying, God, imagine what it's like you know, back home at the moment, and the country was going. The country was, was was going mad, and it was the start of the, it was the start of a of, of you know of a great season. Um, and, and a point that you made earlier, which was a, a, a very important. This was a, at a time, the mid eighties stuff were is very down down mm. in Ireland. This was you know this was twenty percent unemployment. 50 percent of this was more than you know one year none of my friends in college went to got jobs in Ireland we all had to go we all had to go and we all mostly came back and so for this doom and gloom this was before Ray Houghton had put the ball in the English net mm-hmm. and the whole, yeah. all, of, all of that stuff it was before the cores it was before river dance it was before all these kind of things that made us feel proud and you know doing 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 well and it was it was it was just it was it was it was fantastic and, um, did you feel that kind of weight on your shoulders in any way, Hugo, that you were kind of doing it for the country? Did you have that sense or did it just kind of... I think that we were aware of it, but if it wasn't the fellow responsibility, I think the the, big, the bigger thing was we wanted to believe Mick Doyle's, you know, uh, Mick was so good at and we wanted to, you know, to believe it. And it was such a great way of playing and it was great rugby. We were running the ball from everywhere. We were scoring amazing tries. We won a part of for the first time in, you know, in a long time by and scoring great tries doing it. It was just, it made you feel just so great to be Irish. I mean, it was, it was the, the gloom, the doom and gloom around at that time. You remember, it was just, it was, it was awful. Uh, of course, uh, 85 in the game against England and Michael Kiernan's fantastic drop goal under great pressure, it has to be added. Uh, but that was also the moment of uh, Kieran Fitzgerald's f- famous line, "Where's your, uh, where's your pride? Where's your effing pride?" And yeah. do you remember that moment? Did you actually hear him? Yeah, I, I do, and we nearly blew it. We absolutely nearly blew it, and it was a bit like the French game, you know, back after the when we went back to '82. We nearly blew it. We were so much better. England were going through a really bad period at that time. Um, and, but we had, there was, a, you know, the whole country assumed there was no way that we could lose. And and actually, when Kieran was saying that, England had just had a penalty to go ahead, thirteen ten. Rob Andrew had a had a had a penalty opportunity. If if he had got that, we would have had to score a try. And it was wet and it was slippy and it was it was we didn't look as though we were going to score another try. But the so we, the, that went our way. We had a drop off. France Balan took the, the drop off and we going down the field went ball after ball and you could hear the crowd was just getting louder and louder and it was a crowd out of desperation because they thought this is going to be it's going to go wrong at the last minute and um you know we then get another we get we get down the pitch and Kieran's going mad and he's exhorting us on and then we win another the line out and Don Lennon peels around 
and then Michael, Michael, as we, you know, go, you know, getting Ailsa dropkick, and the, the sort of, it, and you see the sort of people behind this, the, 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 it's a great, one of the great pieces of footage when the people behind on the terraces on the far end just going absolutely ballistic as the ball as the ball goes over. And what we got, it, it, it was it was it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. And the final whistle was soon afterwards. It took us half an hour to get off the field. It was amazing. But we almost blew that game. We really, really almost blew it. And we were, we were lucky. And Kieran was an inspirational captain. And well, these these moments are 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 pretty. Uh, they're won by fine margins, aren't they? And it's the way that's the way it goes. So you uh, played, I think, your last match uh, for Ireland in, in 1988, and you were already working in London. Uh, and that's one question, actually, I, I had to ask you. A lot of these uh, fellas, it was the days of amateurism, and uh, and uh, lads had to have jobs as well as play. Was that difficult to fit in? Yeah, it was, but it was great, actually, you know, and people sometimes say nowadays, um, wouldn't you like, it's a pity, would you like to just be able to play rugby the whole time? And, and you know, much like a huge admiration for the guys and huge gratitude for the, for the pleasure they give us at the moment. It was great having two lives. It was great being able to have the life of, uh, you know, playing rugby, international rugby at its best, but also having the other things, things having a full uh experience in college and doing the whole the whole college thing and then having a career then having the career and um you know i remember going back to sort of the trinity stage with brendan Kennelly, who's the poet doing his class i used to get him a ticket for the games i used to meet brendan every monday night and brendan would tell me about his adventure of the day you know going to the game the people he would meet we were playing france wales one day and every time wales got a penalty brendan who was a short fat wonderful with a huge smile he stood up and he started to invoke this Celtic curse. And people around him in the stand were looking at, what's this going on? And suddenly around out of this is Brendan Kennelly. And so it got to the stage that every time Wales got a penalty, people were turning around and Brendan would get up and give him his Celtic curse. <laughs> and uh, it all was going well until Brendan was short taken and had to go to the Gents 10 minutes from time and Thorburn kicked the winning penalty for Wales. And I got to know Brendan very well. And he would go to the games and he just loved to hear his stories. Because when you're playing, you're actually quite isolated. And I used to meet him on Monday night in O'Neill's in Suffolk. And Brendan would tell me the story of the day, the people he met, the, the whole, and he would bring your whole experience alive. And I remember after that English Michael Kiernan drop in the game, I met the whole country had been going mad. I met Brendan on the Monday night and we were chatting about the game. And I was thinking, there's something strange, Brendan. There's something, you know, you're, you know, when you're chatting to somebody and you're, they're kind of, there's something wrong. Yeah. And I said, Brendan, what was it? So I got him two tickets for the game. And he said, I went out, and, you know, he said, I left Trinity a couple of hours before the game, walked out to a beggar's bush, chatted to people, stopped by the pub there. I met this lovely English couple um, who'd come over from Staffordshire in the black country and they were great fans of Thomas Hardy. And he said they were a bit down because... They'd no tickets for the game. England were not in for nothing. They were going for nothing at all. But they said they'd come to Ireland and they but they didn't have tickets for the game. So he said, Hugh, I hope you don't mind. I gave him the two tickets you'd given me and I watched the match on TV. And I just thought, Brendan, that's that's you. And and then so many. And so to your point is you could have those kind of experiences and you know, the full length of college and the whole thing around you know, the, the rugby now, that obviously with the sort of the professional game and the professional game is, is, is not possible. 
But I think the other thing about working is really important. And I think the having the two lives is really important because, you know, I, if you look back at that 85 side, they're all doing things. We had great memories. We'd all of which we'd won more games than we'd lost. We'd have won. I wish I'd got that try against Scotland. I wish I could. And everyone looks back with just good memories, really. And they're all doing other things now. People mm-hmm. have their ups and downs. We've all had ups and downs, various things. But everyone's in a you know reasonably good place. And I just hope for the generation now who come out and meet their school friends and are saying, gosh, I'm so far be you know, I'm so far behind in, in many ways. I mean, a tiny percentage are going to retire on what they make. Not that you want anybody retiring and or stopping work in your mid-30s. But I just fear um that a number that a lot of the players will will come out and meet guys they were at school with and saying, I'm I'm you know, I'm so far behind. The, mm-hmm. the good news is, the, the good news is, I think they're coming much more aware of this. And I remember meeting some guys, you know, from the landscape many years ago and saying, God, you think about what you're going to do after rugby. And they were kind of looking at me as they're saying, God, you're going to be telling me about getting life insurance next. And I remember thinking it'll only be when the young guys coming into the dressing room see the older guys um, who were the legends of the dressing room and they're kind of hanging around Dublin or Cork or Limerick or Galway or Belfast and not doing very much. And they'll say, I'm not going to end up like that because it's very tough. Um, it's very tough, like doing, you know, doing both. And I'd hate to think the people who are giving us so much pleasure would end up presenting, um, in a sense, the game. And there's a great guy, David Beresford, a, a wonderful English guy, wrote a book about French rugby, the eighties and, uh, interviewed a lot of us for us. And, the interesting thing he said in the preface was that over 65, the English Rugby Union did a, a survey, and over 65% of people who have come out of professional rugby had some mental health issues mm-hmm. at, at the, you know, at the at, at, the, at the time. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard doing, you know, and uh, you know, I look at John, there's a guy called John O'Driscoll who's a relation of Brian, who is our back row forward for us, um, Lion, a wonderful guy. And I met him at the airport one day. I had he was finished, I was still playing. And I said, hi, John, how are you doing? So I'm really finding it hard. I'm really missing, the, I'm missing, I'm really missing the rugby. And it brought him over to Ireland. He lived in Manchester. But John was a consultant dermatologist in Manchester Hospital. So all day long, there were people coming saying, Mr. O'Driscoll, can I get your opinion? I, we need you here. I value your opinion. We need to. So he, he had a whole life in a sense of, of, doing well when he where people were looking to him um and my my fears but he still found it very hard on the on the on the finishing rugby because we all, we all do my, my fear i hope that, that that you know so many of the players who are giving us so much pleasure at the moment can kind of sort themselves out in as as well as playing it now also creating what they're going to do afterwards whatever it's going to be um rather than waking up and you know it's going to be in the mid thirties, kind of thinking, what am I going? What am I going to do now? So I, I, I have great admiration. I have great respect for the guys now, and I think it's great to see, you know, people thinking more about what they're going to do afterwards because it's, it's hard enough stopping playing rugby, but if you're, if you don't have anything to do that gives you satisfaction or fulfills your capabilities, it's going to, it's very, going to be very tough. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, 
remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Well, how did you find, uh, you know, giving up rugby and, and working in, in the real world? Not so much working in the real world, but, but, but working when you couldn't really play rugby anymore. Did you find it hard to let go? Yeah, I, I, but the end of it, I was lucky. I, I, I got eight seasons. I dragged out my time as student. I think, for, you know, I was stayed in Trinity a long time. I stayed in Oxford for a, a bit. And really, I played when I was starting work with a company called Boston Consulting Group in London. I, you know, it was it was like the fault lines of a volcano. Trying to sort of do the two was very difficult. Um, I was living, I was working in the centre of London. I was taking the train out to London Irish and Sunbury on Thames, way out in the south southwest of London. I was coming back into town. I was living in Islington in the northeast of London. It was a bit like at the end. It was a bit like the fault lines of a volcano, you know, of an earthquake, kind of tectonic plates going up against each other. Phil Matthews, I said, my teammate said, you don't realise what a merry-go-round it is in until you get off. But I, it just came to the stage that no, I'm going to have to. To work. But I had eight, I was lucky. I had eight years, um, you know, on the on the national team, and I had I was I had, a, although it was very hard for that last season. I knew, you know, the time was the time was come, but I was lucky to have got those years in and, and happy to be able to get a. So psychologically, you were prepared for. I was, yeah, okay. and, and you could feel it. And I was, you know, commuting back, and it was, you know, commuting back, trying to work, you know, long weeks and. It was just, it was just getting to the stage difficult. Played a little bit for Black Rock at the end, but it was, I, I, you know, I was, I was, I, I was lucky that I was able to sort of, um, uh, to do the two. And, uh, and uh, but, uh, but when I, when I was giving up, it was, it was time to, it was time to move on. Okay, so the the Ireland uh, rugby team obviously is an all Ireland uh, rugby team, uh, as we know, and it takes in people from from different traditions. Uh, and you played, obviously, at a time when tensions were very high, obviously, at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, did that ever cast a shadow over any of it between the players or the relationship between the players, or, or was that all left to one side? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. No, when I came into the Irish team at first, um, it was it was never really mentioned. It was never talked about. And it was kind of people said it was great that you all played together. And the troubles aren't, aren't mentioned. And, you know, back in the 80s, it was a pretty tough time. And it was a very tough time for our Northern teammates. And they didn't really talk about it. And I remember thinking, well, you know, you all played together for Ireland, but you don't really talk about the situation. And I have that, that's fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. I mean, if we can't talk, if you get to know somebody as a teammate, get to trust them in the extraordinary atmosphere of international rugby, and you can't sit down at the end and say, Look, I don't. Can I just understand your background? Most obviously, most of the rugby players were from a unionist part of background, and so we did. You know, particularly myself and Trevor England, we talked. Trevor and I were Irish universities. We were on the eighty-two side, and I went talked, and you know, I learned so much about it. And then you'd be asked to go up to Northern Ireland to speak at dinners or something, and 
And so I got to the place like Balamina and Bangor and Larne and Enniskillen and um, Maharafelt. And I learned so much about it and because I hadn't really been to the north, you know, that ocean. As most people, as I've learned you know, since in the south, don't go to the north. And I learned so much and there was so much going on at the time. I mean, we had the we had a special branch sleeping on our on our floor in the Shelburne Hotel because we had one of our players, Jimmy McCoy, was in the RUC. PSNI. We had Brian McCall was in the British Army. Um, you know, and there were threats about it. And they were living a very tough situation at home um as well. So Trevor and I had talked and talked and talked and I thought it was a it was a privilege because I got to know Northern Ireland, the North really and the places and its people and the history. And um, my great-granduncle was Owen McNeil who found the Gaelic League and the Irish Volunteers. But I, it wasn't so much, it was even, that was a part of it, but it really was much more speaking to the likes of Trevor and Nigel Carr and Baby you know, Owen and Willie Anderson and, and, and guys that were actually learnt a lot about it. And then I knew a lot of people from the nationalist side as well, and that inspired me to you know to, to get a better understanding and it's it's something that i loved and it's, it's a big part of my life and it still always has been and always will be now i know that that or my understanding of it is now correct me if i'm if i'm if i'm wrong but my understanding of it is that you witnessed um uh, an incident involving the irish uh forward uh, nigel carr uh who was injured in a in a bomb? Uh, isn't that right? You were traveling in a car alongside his car. Is that true? Yeah, um, didn't actually witness the explosion, but we were we were traveling down. What happened was in 1987, we were about to go to the Rugby World Cup, and we had been up in um, in Northern Ireland for an event, and we were driving down to to Dublin to meet up with the Irish team for training, and we were going to go off to New Zealand. And I was in one car with Trevor England and Keith Crossan. And Nigel Carr was in another car with David Irwin and Philip Rainey. And as we were coming down, up, coming up on the road the other way from Dublin was Ju a Judge Gibson and his wife. And the IRA detonated a bomb um, uh, and blew up his car, killing them instantly. And the car spun across the road and collided with the car that Nigel and David and, and Philip were in. Um, fortunately, we, we didn't know, we were a little bit ahead. We didn't know about that. We were, we were just ahead of them. Um, and Nigel's career was finished that day. And so we got to Dublin and we were all the team together and Mick Doyle was saying, you know, everyone here, where, where are the guys? Where's where's David Irwin? Where's, where's Nigel Carr? Where's, where are they? And we said, we don't know. And um, then not long afterwards, the message came through to the to the Irish team that there'd been this incident, and, um, and David Irwin was amazing. I mean, you want to see the picture of the car, of their car, and it's amazing that any of them got out of it. And that effectively ended Nigel's career. It could have ended his life. It could have ended um, um, for David and for Philip as well. But you, you know, the thing you also realised was this was something shocking. This was new. This was something that we'd never come across. But for our our teammates in Northern Ireland, this was this was part of everyday life. Mm. But it really sort of came home to the, um, you know, to, to everybody on that day. And then in 1996, after the uh, IRA uh, bomb in uh, Canary Wharf, I think it was in London, 
you and Trevor Ringland um, established a Peace uh, International in May of 1996. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when the IRA blew up Canary Wharf, there was a lot of protest here. And there was a lot of people marching and going out and saying, this is not in our name. This is not in our name. And I thought that the idea, it was a year after South Africa had won the Rugby World Cup and the images of President Mandela and Francis Papina had gone around the world. And so I called Trevor and said, why don't we organize a peace and trash? Why don't we get the best players in the world to come to Dublin and we'll have to fill Lansdowne Road and have a statement of anti-IRA and loyalist you know, violence. And so we went to the Barbarian and... and um, well, actually, the, the key guy, we had said we had to get one of the big South Africans there. We weren't going to want to do this. The season was nearly over. We, was going to be, we had to do it in six weeks. Um, so we had to get one of the big South Africans there, uh, ideally Francois Pinar. And I called John Robbie, who had, was uh, doing a radio show in former Irish captain, mm-hmm. uh, former Leinster captain. And he um, uh, contacted Francois Pinar, and the word came back, Francois was in and he doesn't want a penny for it. And the whole thing took off from that. And some of the best players in the world, David Campisi, Philippe Sella, Tim Richards, Rory Underwood, they all, they all came. And so they came uh, and we filled Lansdowne Road and the guests of honour were four children, all who had been touched by the trouble. So a little boy called Darren Baird, who's both his parents and his sister were killed in the Shankill Road bombing. Uh, and a little boy called Tommy Mullen, whose best brother was killed in a reprisal attacking Grey Steel after that. And a little boy, Gareth Bowlesworth, whose best friend was um, Tim Parry, who was killed in the bombing in Warrington. Uh, and there was a little girl who was in uh, Cooperation Ireland in Dublin. And so they were the guests of honour. And there was a moment's silence before there was, there was no flags, no anthems. And at the end of the match, the team, you know, who had these some of these world figures who had created some of the greatest images of rugby, and now they'd come to lend their voice for those working for peace in Ireland. They did a lap of honour of the of the ground, and the whole ground just raised, stood up, and applauded and thanked these figures for lending their names to those who are working for peace in Ireland. And it was I had been privileged from the schools, from Ireland, from Triple Crowns, from everything to have had some amazing days in what was the old Lansdowne Road, now the Aviva Stadium. But nothing sort of came close to that day, of just seeing the whole crowd rise and the team go around. And so it just showed, you know, again, trying to bring out the sport. We were privileged to pray in a sport that brought people together from all parts of this island, threatened nobody's identity or constitutional position, celebrated their richness, celebrated their diversity, celebrated all the special things that they that, that, that brought. Uh, and that today was the thing. And I think it's still a great example of, uh, of how sport can build relationships, build reconciliation, build friendships, and then have your constitutional discussions, whatever it would be, wherever one has taken, respecting all and having mutual respect. But it was, it, was, it was just fantastic to have that. And it's uh, a great memory. And, it, and it, 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 it's Northern Ireland is still a huge part of my life you know, now and uh, and it's people, because I've seen it's people at its best from all traditions, from all, all traditions. Uh, and I know you're heavily involved in, in the British and Irish uh, Association. Um, and uh, I actually read an article, I think it was uh, by you in the Irish Times, talking about uh, the issue of United Ireland and what that would mean. Uh, and the complexities of it, which you got brilliantly well 
uh, they certainly raise an awful lot of questions in my head that I hadn't even thought about. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody's... The, people have talked about the Good Friday Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement and the ability of, under which the Good Friday Agreement to call a border poll if... You know, if if that's if it's a secretary of state thinks it's a it's it's a chance of passing, but the first opening lines of the Good Friday Agreement talk about the need for reconciliation, talk about the need for mutual respect, talk about the need for um, building relationships, and that's what our focus, you know, should be. And it's not only a good thing in itself; um, it'll improve the lives for all the people in Northern Ireland. But if your long-term ambition is to unite Ireland, or your long-term ambition is is a United Kingdom or in Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom, you building those relationships are a precondition for whatever your long-term ambition is. And so what I would say is, is border, you know, absolutely legitimate aim of people with the United Ireland as their aspiration, absolutely legitimate to remain part of the United Kingdom. But let's build relationships, let's build reconciliation, and then let's work out. But trying to sort of judge, trying to, a bit like trying to win the championship without doing the hard work. I've just got an aspiration to win it, but I'm not prepared to train. I don't want to go out and train on Monday evenings in the wet in December. Uh, and so that's really, I suppose, where I would where, where it would come from, because I've seen the people of of, of all the parts of this island at its best. Um, but it's it's you know it, I, I also am very aware of the complexities and the divisions and the diversities and the hurt and the healing that needs to still, still happen. Um, and, you know, and there's a young generation coming up in Northern Ireland as well who don't want to be defined in this binary uh, way, who want, you know, an open, equal society with rights, you know, for all. And there's a lot of great stuff happening in, in you know, in Northern Ireland at, at the moment. Uh, and I've been privileged, as I say, to see the people from all traditions at their very best. Um, but then that's why I care so much about the place. But it's also, I think, why you, you have to build the relationships first. You seem to have a very strong kind of social conscience, Hugo. Well, I always, I think you get it. Any of these things, I think you probably get it out more than you put in. And you know, I, talking about the north, you see how much fun and how much I have got from from that. Um, but I, I do think there's a very strong sort of obligation on you know responsibility. If you you know, we've got a lot of opportunities. It started at the start of this. You know, went privileged to go to a school like Black Rock, which was fantastic, and it was really, you know, made very clear to us that you had an obligation and a responsibility, and you had a privilege, and and um, yeah, so I've so I've loved being, you know, involved in in those, um, you know, in these kind of events. You know, I was a privilege from the from from this north south and working now with people with intellectual disabilities and third level education. This, you know, it's always assumed that people with intellectual disabilities couldn't go to college no they can but a tiny percentage of people here don't you know a tiny percentage of people do go to third level education and i've seen people come in through the trinity center for intellectual disabilities go out and you know get jobs and we place them in jobs and how it transforms their lives how it transforms the lives of their families uh, how it transforms um, you know, the companies they work in. And we're only scratching the surface because a tiny percentage of people with intellectual disabilities go on to third level education. But the model works and you're going to hear much more about this and it's brilliant more and more companies are working on people with, with, with disabilities. We are uh, running out of time, and unfortunately, uh, Hugo. So I'd like to go back to uh, the rugby and ask you a few final questions. You mentioned Ollie Campbell as being 
the greatest player you've played with or against is 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 that is that your feeling no, stick? No, okay. No, 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 no. Who else were uh, the great players? Uh, your heroes? Uh, Serge Blanco and Philippe Sella, who played for France. They were so <laughs> difficult to play against. They were like they were like it was like the Parc de Prince in the old Parc de Prince, and the band would start going and the music would pick them up. And then suddenly these players were so fast and so they'd come at you. It was like fighter jets. It was like you and then you they were running so straight and so fast you couldn't drift and tackle. They were uh, they were some of the greatest players who played for. Jonathan Davies playing for Wales was also. You know, magnificent, magnificent footballer, um, and a just brilliant, 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 brilliant player. I think those were the best, um, the best players I played. I played against, and uh, Ollie was the best player with or against. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the, the French experience of playing in in, in Parc de Prince because, uh, you know, I remember. Um, you know, you 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 get up and and be looking forward to the match. Uh, and then within a few minutes, <laughs> within a few minutes, the Irish team is getting dragged right and left. And I often wondered, what is that feeling like? <laughs> oh, it was rough. You know, it it was it was it was rough because the noise just builds builds up. And you know, if you let them play, and just going back to what we said at the start, determining the basis on which the game is played, the French want to play fast and very very straight. But it was like the music, the drums would the drums would sort of start, and the first the first like Sella, Charve, Blanco would be coming down at you. The drums would go up, and then the noise with Menel, Cambarbero, and then just they just run so straight and so fast and so you know threatening. It was it, it was it was it was such great. You almost enjoy it. It's been a bizarre way. <laughs> You, you you admired it so much. It was very hard to play, very hard to play against. Uh, Hugo, the one thing I'd like to touch on uh, is that I know obviously you were a great rugby player with a great rugby tradition from a great rugby school, but you also played soccer and at quite a high level too. Oh, I loved soccer. Yeah, I loved soccer. I played a lot of soccer in Black Rock when I could. I played for the team there. I went for UCD for a year before I went to uh, Trinity and played with the great Dr. Tony O'Neill. Um, and we won a number of competitions, and I and uh, I remember one day I scored. I was I used to score a lot of goals. And one day, actually, Johnny Giles and Eamon Dunphy were involved with Shamrock Rovers. They came down, <laughs> came down to, to to see me play, and I don't think I played that really well that day. But I, I went, at some stage, the rugby was getting you know when we went to we went and toured the Far East. Tony O'Neill organised. Uh, it was an amazing man in our in our, in Irish in, in Irish soccer, and it was wonderful to play. And we would go to the Far East, the Philippines, Taiwan, and, uh, and it was it was it was great. But it, unfortunately, I had to make a choice as it was this. As, and I played in, in Trinity. We we won the Collingwood Cup uh, when we were there it was the first time for a long time, and I managed to get a few goals. And I loved the soccer, and uh, it was lovely seeing that that tournament again last year. Uh, but the rugby, I just had to make. Choice the rugby was getting serious. I mean, and you were a, you were a striker, and what kind of a striker were you, uh, Hugo? I was jammy. I was I was a big and awkward. I was big awkward. I had a good sense of position, and I used to score a lot of goals. I didn't have very many refined skills, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I looked at some of the guys uh, today. But uh, it was great. It was great fun. I really loved the soccer as well. Well, Hugo, thank you very much. It's it's been fascinating talking to you, uh, and the very very uh, many uh, aspects of 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 your achievements. Um, dare I say it, a Renaissance man. 
<laughs> Look, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed chatting with you as well. Thanks.